The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. The Contrarian Investor Podcast wants to find the best and give them a voice. To help in our search, we use Covey to find and track the best contrarians. Our guests' stock picks are available in real time on the website covey.io slash contrarian. Now, these portfolios are available for anyone to view, track, and share. And on top of that, we encourage our listeners to join our community by building virtual portfolios of stocks and ETFs to compete and rise to the top. At the end of the year, we'll interview the top performing analyst on Covey, right here on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. That means you or any great contrarians you know can rise to the top based on merit and get a voice. Again, the website, covey.io slash contrarian. Kyrol Assetter, co-founder and CEO of Centerfin in New York. Kyrol, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian podcast today. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've known you for a while, but you're, you have this new venture that we're going to talk about in a bit. But I want to first get your views on the market because some of these are quite contrarian. And you're a little bit cautious about the volatility here in the short term, as I believe most are. But longer term, you say you're a little more constructive. So talk me through that. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, you know, really the the, the name of the firm comes from the, the concept of balance. And, and balance, I think, is important in, in everything in life. And, and, and managing money is one of those. And so when we kind of think about where we are today, and this is, you know, we, we've been in this now for two years managing money actually for about a year, a little over a year, we have to take a time horizon that's, that's consistent with our client's objectives, which is usually, you know, given the age of our clients, it's 20, 30, 40 years. So it's a very long-term time horizon. That being said, we cannot ignore the significant macro kind of headwinds that we're facing that we have been facing really for the last, you know, year or so. And our goal is to, you know, try to protect against some of that volatility as, as we experience it, but still maintain that longer term time horizon, which, you know, I think if you, you know, if you go back over a long period of time, you know, generally you want to be bullish risk assets. But it's a matter of kind of 
what sectors and what industries and what companies you're exposed to, rather than just being, you know, long stocks or long bonds or long, you know, some combination of the two. We actually think the long, you know, the 60-40 kind of stock bond uh, approach that's, you know, the, the most widely available to, to individuals out there is just not going to work for the foreseeable future in this okay. environment. And so we, we have a, a very different approach. Okay. Yeah, it certainly hasn't worked this year. So, of course, this begs the question, what you think of the market environment heading into next year and what you think will be the leading industries, I guess, or sectors? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, to take a step back, going into this year, uh, we were reflecting on the environment. And this is, you know, just 12 months ago, if you recall, the 10-year was trading at one and a half, right? We're trading at three and a half, but it got as high as four and a half. But the 10-year, a year ago, trading at one and a half, seemed like a very risky proposition to us, right? Because you're taking a lot of duration risk and you're not really getting any return in terms of yield for it. And so our view was given that the inflation environment, which at the time, if you recall, was, you know, everybody was still discussing it being transitory. That was the narrative in the market. Our view is that there was some not insignificant probability that the uh, inflation uh, would not be transitory. And in that environment, the, the, the kind of obvious thing to do, and there's never really obvious things to do, but it, you know, it seemed to be a common sense thing to do, which would be just get out of fixed income, right? Because inflation is going to be first and foremost worse for fixed, fixed income. And so we made a conscious decision to basically pare back you know, any and all uh, traditional fixed income exposure in client portfolios wow. and instead, um, instead replace it with commodities and commodity-related equities. And in hindsight, that proved to be the right decision. But at the time, you know, it, it felt like, uh, it, again, it felt like, you know, it was a common sense thing to do if, if you were to, you know, be concerned that inflation was, was more than transitory. And so that was a year ago. Now we're sitting here today, and obviously it's been a tough year. And we actually, you know, if you look at the stock market, where, you know, on broader indices, you're down 15% on the S&P 500. You're down, you know, north of that, obviously, on NASDAQ, which has been kind of the leading stock market for the, for the last, you know, decade or so. So it's not terrible, but I think it feels terrible because along with that, you have, you know, the, the bond portion of client portfolios, again, which is what most individuals are allocated to, is down just as much. And that's not supposed to happen, right? And, and that's kind of the problem that we foresaw and that we think will continue to be a problem, which is that, you know, stocks and bonds this year have been correlated. And we think an inflationary environment, which I think will, will, will be in for the foreseeable future in a kind of a structurally inflationary environment, you're, you're not going to see the negative correlation between stocks and bonds that you were used to. And so our view is that you still want to be long stocks, but you want to be weighted towards certain sectors. And particularly, we think it's more hard asset industries like energy, like metals and mining, like industrials. And we think that you also want to have exposure to you know, the commodities themselves, uh, maybe to a lesser degree. And we think, you, you know, for, for now, anyway, it seems like you, you know, it's best to avoid traditional fixed income. So you know, there's there's other ways to get yield into the portfolios, but traditional fixed income seems to be, you know, even with the massive move that's happened, unless, you know, we're heading into, you know, a, a deeply deflationary uh, environment, which some people are calling for, but it's just hard to see that. It, it feels like that's not a good place to be. Now, that could change, which is why, you know, it's very important to be paying attention as to what's going on and, and being active and not being wed to, to your views in this kind of, in this kind of market. Wow, that's interesting. That you did just gave us a bunch of stuff there to unpack. I mean, first of all, so it sounds like you're kind of the same setup almost as the beginning of this year in terms of staying out of fixed income and staying long commodities and, and that whole space. But this is, I mean, oil and, and commodities have run up pretty much this year. And 
fixed income has dropped a bit, which would normally be when people might consider reversing course. But you think it has further to go, that same trend? Yeah, we, we don't think inflation is, um, you know, again, uh, it, it, you know, we'll kind of see how the situation develops, but we think we're more likely in a more persistent kind of higher than average inflation environment, in which case you just don't want to be long traditional fixed income assets and you want to be long things that, that benefit from inflation. You know, equities is one of those things um, and kind of real asset industries is another one of those things. We think the big difference between today and kind of pre-2021, right? So, you know, we kind of had this, you know, again, big regime change. We had post-2008, you know, you and I, I think, met right around that time. Yeah. You know, post-2008, we had that that big bust. And the Fed came in and, and they pumped a bunch of liquidity into the system. And that liquidity, everybody was worried, if you recall, about inflation because, you know, you're printing all this money, it's going to cause inflation, and the inflation never came. And the, and the reason now with the benefit of hindsight, and I don't think anybody has a perfect explanation, but I think a reasonable explanation is that the globalization that we were going through, right, which is basically, you know, working with, you know, the, the, the Western countries working with the Eastern countries and the Western countries kind of using the cheap labor of the Eastern countries, mainly China, amongst others, that was in itself a massive kind of disinflationary force. And so it was helping keep, keep a lid on inflation, even though we were doing all this monetary uh, stimulus, right? All this, all this money printing that we're doing. Now, fast forward to, you know, the big, you know, that, that was beginning to roll over in 2019, because if you recall, under the Trump administration, it completely changed our stance towards China, uh, probably rightfully so, in, again, with the benefit of hindsight. And Biden hasn't changed anything since coming into office either. And so we have a different relationship with China now. We're no longer... Kind of we're, we're 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 more frenemies than we're we're friends at this point. Um, we kind of need each other still, but um, I think each country is kind of focused on their own um, you know specific needs more so than cooperating with each other. And so you don't have the benefit of globalization to be disinflationary anymore. Needless to say, we're not doing trade with Russia and and, and we're not you know importing energy from them anymore either, right? And so. You have a very different environment where you, you cannot have, you know, the, the common response to any kind of blips in the economy in the post-financial crisis pre-2022 period was the Fed just, you know, would turn around and start easing and, and printing money and everything would be okay. You can't do that anymore. And so that's why we think that, you know, this, this tightening cycle is, is, is real. We think the Fed will continue until they see, you know, real signs of inflation coming down, but we don't think inflation is just going to go straight back down to 2%. It just mm. doesn't seem likely. Um, none of their projections you know, to date have been right, and it doesn't seem likely they'll be, they'll be right this time either. And so what we think that means is that you, know, you want to be long things that are, that are going to benefit from that kind of environment, and you want to be active in how you adjust your exposures as things move around. Because as you know, you know, things move quickly these days. Yeah. And uh, you can't just be, you know, set in, forget it, you know, robo-advisor, auto-balancer, all that stuff that doesn't work in this environment. That was the prior decade. Today, you need to be much more cognizant of what's going on and how things are changing. So, yeah, so we would recommend, you know, and, and again, none of this is financial uh, right. investment advice, but we, we generally would think that, you know, being long commodities and, and, and commodity-related companies and industries that benefit from uh, this environment is, is kind of the right way to reposition. And we think that is probably going to be once, whenever we have a bottom and whenever this, you know, recession uh, that is, you know, the most telegraphed recession I've ever heard of, but whenever we get this recession, which it most likely will happen, 
Um, whenever, you know, the market usually bottoms before the recession actually, you know, finishes. Um, but the, the leadership coming out of that period will be very different than it was for the last decade. So we think it might be some of these harder asset industries um, like industrials, like metals and mining, like energy. And so that's, that's, how, that's how we've been repositioning portfolios. Interesting. I guess the caveat being that these be Western slash U.S. or North American, ideally, energy producers, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So yeah, we we've significantly like you know, there's been a bunch of different things we've done over the course of 2022. Uh, one of which has been significantly reduce our exposure to Europe, and that was done early 2022. Even Western um, Europe. Even Western Europe. Uh -huh. Yeah, we think Western Europe is probably ahead of the U.S. in terms of the economic weakness. They're also more vulnerable to the energy crisis, which, mm. you know, we're kind of plodding along, but it's still a problem. But to, to your point about, you know, being positioned this way, the, the, the world population, I think in November, just hit 8 billion. The population is growing at, I think, 1% a year globally. That's 80 million people uh, added to the population globally. We need energy, you know, it's, it's, it's to have a functioning society. You know, east, west, it doesn't matter. We need energy. And so we think that there's, and there's been a, you know, it's, it's now not contrarian to, to say, I guess, but I don't think a lot of people are, are speaking about it in this way, but there's not been a lot of investment in energy, particularly in North America, and we're going to need to do that. And so we have, we have exposure to clean energy, we have exposure to traditional energy, we have exposure to uranium, uh, which mm. benefits from, from nuclear, uh, hopefully coming online as, a, as an additional uh, source of energy, which we think is a very um, logical thing to do. And I think, you know, largely has been shunned because of political reasons rather than fundamental reasons. And so those are, those are kind of, those are areas that we think will benefit in, in the, in the coming environment. You mentioned political stuff. There's a, obviously a, a lot of politics that can play a role here, especially when it comes to that stuff. I and mean, hasn't the Biden administration been pretty uh, opposed to, you know, new investments in, in energy and kind of trying to squeeze the energy sector here and been very unfriendly to the whole U.S. energy sector, and isn't that a concern? It is, and 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 that's you know like that's unfortunately you know political risk is part of you know these types of industries, and so you, that's why I say you have to kind of pay attention to what's going on because you know there there are these additional risks that you need to be aware of, and and the Biden administration has been you know unfortunately I don't really it's hard to understand uh, where this message is coming from because on you know from from one. Uh, side of their mouth, they're saying, you know, that they want to shut down, you know, the traditional traditional energy sources. On the other side, they're saying that we need to produce more in order to lower the price of energy. Um, you can't have both, and and so um, so I think I hope that you know whatever leadership is is kind of in charge of this in the Biden administration, they they come around to a more balanced view because mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't make any sense. It's it, the the two are in conflict with each other mm -hmm. and energy companies are not going to invest in their business. If, if there's a risk that, you know, there's going to be more regulations and taxes and whatnot coming down the pike. And so yeah. we need to get clarity on that. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. How do you play the clean energy, uh, investment yeah so so we've had uh we've had a position in a in an etf um that has exposure to uh kind of the clean clean energy companies and um there's 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 some you know uranium miners in there there's there's solar companies there's wind companies there's you know some 
clean energy utilities in there. It's something that we've actually had as a core position, you know, pre-2022 that we feel like, again, kind of, if you think about our timeframe for our clients, 20, 30, 40 years, that's definitely going to be uh, an area of investment, right? And so that's been a core kind of allocation of ours uh, going back since inception. Now, you know, I'm going to ask you about the ETF, of course, right? And with the understanding that it's not investment advice. It's not investment advice. It's um, iClean. It's I-C-L-N. Right. Okay, cool. Any reason you took that one as opposed to the, I mean, there's a bunch of these, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of this. We, we like this one better. They also, uh, better than the, the others, they also rebalanced it at the beginning of this year um, to make it less. It was a little bit, um, it had a little bit more exposure pre-2022 into uh, more speculative kind of clean energy plays. And they rebalanced it to more, uh, I guess I'd say less speculative energy plays. So it's a more you know, there's a little bit more of a utility-like element to it, um, which we also like because we actually mm-hmm. don't have a, you know, we don't have a ton of traditional utility exposure because it's just not a sector that we think is attractive from a valuation perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we like it from that perspective. Okay. What do you think of uh, other other sources of energy, other countries that produce energy other than Russia and I guess the Middle East and uh, yeah, and places like that? Because one of the I've seen some coverage here, and I had this thought actually when the Russia thing whole started that Europeans might have to go to Africa in particular. There are a lot of uh, countries in Africa, Nigeria, Angola, and others that produce a ton of oil. Uh, so, have you looked at that at all, or South America too, like Brazil? Has have, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the good thing about uh, the United States is we actually have all of the energy that we need. Right. We, we just need to we just need to produce it, and and we just have not invested in producing it. And I think that ultimately that's a better answer than going, you know, again, the, 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 the mistake that Europe made and we did to a lesser degree, you know, if you think about it, relying on Russia for cheap energy um, when Russia is a, you know, dictatorship that is a, as at the whim of, of one, one person that can change their, you know, view in the world and change everything overnight, that, that was a risky thing to do. And, and I think that was, a, you know, again, not to dive into politics, but my understanding is a lot of that was led by politics in, in Western Europe. And so I think we we just need to, you know, to my point earlier, we need to have the government leadership, um, you know, lay out the ground rules for what this looks like, for not for the next two to three years, but for the next, you know, decade plus. Um, and we need to have a more um, thoughtful plan about how to slowly transition into cleaner sources of energy domestically. We don't really need to go outside of this country, um, and that's the beauty of it. You know, it is an interesting thing that I, there was a podcast that I listened to actually this week or last week, I forget, but somebody was making the point that given that the the world is, you know, going to continue to grow from a population perspective and, and the world needs incremental energy and, you know, the transition to clean energy is not happening overnight, you know, the, the concept that I thought was super interesting, which I don't know how to play this at, at all, but I just, you know, throw it out there as an interesting discussion point. But um, the concept was introducing different prices for different uses of energy instead of sources of energy. So, for instance, the example that they made was, okay, so, you know, if you want to stream, you know, binge watch a new Netflix show like I did with my family, the new, uh, the new uh, Tim Burton thing on Netflix with my kids this past weekend, well, that's a pretty, you know, quote unquote, frivolous use of, of energy, right? You're still using a lot of energy because that, that data is sitting on the data center, the data center is using a lot of energy, you're using your TV, the TV is using energy, right? You're using energy to do that versus 
you know, let's say heating your home in the wintertime in, in the Northeast in, in, in the United States. That's a different use of energy. And so why is that energy all priced the same? And it kind of like made sense to me. Maybe this is a mechanism if we can figure out, if somebody could figure out, maybe it's the government, I don't know. But if somebody could figure out a way to price energy at different levels based on how we consume it, that could be a nice way to transition us eventually into a clean energy regime, but it's still going to take decades. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, one may maybe, I mean, it probably would involve some legislation, which, you know, good luck, but maybe if you have some kind of way to kind of incentivize cleaner energy, like you take the train, you get some credit, right. And then you can use that for watching your streaming thing or something versus if you own a car and you're, you're buying gas, that's, you know, for all the reasons is, is more harmful. And yeah, I mean, good there too. Good luck with that because there's bound to be all kinds of fighting. Um, but maybe that's one way of doing it. I don't know. Well, I, I think that that's a more, I, I think that's a like, like your example, is a great example too, right? It's like, it's just a more common sense approach to solving this issue uh, that we, we clearly need to get on top of, but it's just, again, you know, just curtailing or, or getting rid of traditional, energy supply is just not a it's not a solution it's not realistic right all right you talked yeah the whole um you know reshoring thing from china we had news over the weekend that apple is apparently going to be moving all their production out of, out of mainland china i believe um which somewhat surprisingly didn't really affect the stock at least not from what i've seen do you have do you have thoughts on other themes other ways of playing that I saw that the Vietnam index shot up today, maybe as a result, because they'll get a lot of business that China's been getting on manufacturing. Um, so that's maybe one obvious one. But do you have other other things that you think are, are ways of playing that? Yeah, I mean, I I, I do think that um, that's going to be a trend for the next, you know, for the for the next at least decade, if not longer, um, because I do think we're moving away from this prior, you know, kind of globalization regime, and, and China, it's it's. It's actually surprising, but not surprising because, you know, one of the things that I used to, you know, when people used to bring up the concept of ESG, which, you, as you know, has been kind of a, a very popular concept to talk about, my response was always like, okay, well, how do you, you know, pretty much everybody owns Apple, right? I mean, everybody owns Apple. Apple manufactures all of their products or most of their products in China. China runs modern day concentration camps based on religion. Um how, how's that governance? Like, how, how's that? So, how's the social element of that ESG going? Right when you own Apple, um, and so I, I'm, I was glad to see what they were what they were doing because, as you know, there's been you know protests and, and all sorts of things going on in their plants, and so I think that will continue. I mean, you see it with semiconductors, right? Semiconductors is it's almost like a national security thing. It's almost like energy from that regard, yeah. right? Where um, you know the Chips Act that they passed recently, I think is, a, is a, an indication that probably more of that type of thing is to come where the government's going to help subsidize uh, the development of, of these industries in, in the United States. And I think that's a positive for, yeah. for, for the country. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question. But no, no specific way you can think of, of playing it. I mean, it's, I mean, the obvious, you know, the domestic chip manufacturers, but that's already been priced in, I would assume at this point. Yeah, although they they've all gotten caught up, you know, in the in the downtrend in that in that sector. Mm. Um, but I think kind of coming out of this again, it's too early probably at this mm-hmm. point. But coming out of this, there might be, you know, we haven't done the research on it yet, but there might be a handful of ways to play it. Cool. All right, Chiral Asitur of Centerfin. I want to come back and ask you some questions about yourself, about your firm that you started. Uh, but let's first take a quick break. 
and hear from our sponsors. If you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, you should visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com, whole bunch of benefits including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody, here with Carol Assiter of Centerfin. Carl, this is the section of the show where we ask our guests to tell us more about themselves and about how they arrived at this station in their career. And you've had a pretty long career on, on Wall Street. Again, uh, I guess when we started talking, you were at a hedge fund as part of my hedge fund coverage. Are we still at Goldman? I can't remember. But yeah, tell us about that and then how you came to start the center fin. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm originally actually from the uh, eastern part of the Ukraine. Oh, wow. That is, um, is, is currently under pressure and, and, and you know where the war is, is going on uh, at the second largest city called Haikov. Uh, my family and I moved here when I was a kid in the late 80s. We settled in Queens and eventually Long Island. Um, I got interested in finance just on my own because, you know, when I was in college in the late 90s, we had the first uh, internet bubble, if you remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, like everybody else, thought I was a genius with, you know, borrowed some money from my dad, opened up an E-Trade account, um, you know, doubled my money in a couple of days and, you know, thought that, you know, I was, uh, I was the next Warren Buffett, um, you know, quickly learned my lesson when everything burst and I lost most of it. Um, but it didn't lose my, uh, my, you know, interest in the industry. And so got my foot in the door at Goldman Sachs, right out of undergrad, uh, migrated my way into the prime brokerage business there, which is the business that deals with hedge funds. I was 
very fascinated with hedge funds. It felt like all the smartest people seem to be starting or, or going to work at hedge funds. And I wanted to kind of align myself with that. So I was there for eight years. Uh, a client of mine, also to ex-Goldman, uh, distressed uh, investors, hired me in 2009 uh, to help them grow the business. Um, joined them. I was there for uh, five or six years. Um, still very close to them, still very friendly with them. Um, and then I got recruited into a couple of roles, um, none of which worked out for reasons outside of my control. And so started my own advisory practice focused on hedge funds and alternatives in 2016. Uh, in 2019, I started to shape what is now uh, or, or start to put the pieces together for what is now Centerfin. So the idea was basically, you know, in my whole career, 20 years on Wall Street, anybody who doesn't work on finance, and some people that do, would come to me and ask me advice uh, as to what to do with their money. And, um, and I just had no really good you know, answers for them. Um, I felt like, you know, if you have a lot, a lot of money, you can, you know, go to a private bank, but fees you're paying there are probably, you know, you know, probably too high. Um, and, and you would get some access there, but you're still paying fees and fees and fees. Um, if you don't have a lot of money, there's really no good options and you're going to get some version of a 640 portfolio and you're probably going to pay too much for it. And so the, the uh, you know, as they say, uh, you know, invention is the uh, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. And so I, I decided to start with now center friends to kind of address that need because, you know, now, now when people come to me, friends, family and, and, and you know, other clients asking for help, we, we built the solution for them. Hmm. And so the idea was to replicate to the, to the closest uh, of our ability and, and it will certainly evolve with time as we grow a approach that's more, you know, more akin to professional institutional investors like family offices and endowments foundations where, you know, there's an asset allocation element where they outsource certain portions of the portfolios to uh, external managers. That was the idea. That's what we set out to build. We started building during COVID. Uh, great timing as always by me. And, uh, and then we launched, like I said earlier, uh, uh, you know, earlier this year. And so we've been onboarding clients and, and managing money for, for the better part of this year. Cool. And so how does it work? Is it like a traditional advisory where you, uh, you, you get, I guess, um, you know, custody of the, of the funds, you charge a small fee or something, and then you invest on, on their behalf or. Yeah. So we are a registered investment advisor. We're a fiduciary. We charge a wrap fee. It's uh, you know one half to one percent, which is you know a fraction of what a traditional mm-hmm. advisor is. Uh, we manage the client portfolios to their kind of risk tolerance and time horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, we don't utilize a you know a, a, we're not wed to any one approach. But we certainly have felt, as we were talking about earlier, that the sixty forty approach is certainly not going to work in this environment. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've taken a very different um, we're a very different approach. We actively manage it. Um, we also are you know, as time goes on, as we grow um, our, our plan, and some of this is already in progress, but to introduce kind of, you know, real alternative strategies into client mm-hmm. portfolios. We have some right now, but um, but there's going to be more and more to come as, as we get as we get bigger. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so it's a very different, um, as you're familiar, I mean, it's very different than, um, you know, than what most individuals have access to today. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, your, your background distressed, um, is there any any kind of way? That's one of these asset classes that you can't really get access to as a individual or, or non high net worth, right? Or even if you yeah. are, is that yeah, one of the we, things there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that's uh, that's definitely something that we think makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So distressed investing for for those listening that that are not familiar is basically you know it's buying into usually the debt of companies that are going through some sort of 
uh, you know, restructuring or under or under financial pressure. Um, and so, you know, you're usually buying into the debt at you know some fraction of you know penny on the dollar for, for lack of a you know for, for simplicity's sake. Um, and you know, generally speaking, there's, there's lots of different potential outcomes, but in a traditional kind of situation where a company is a good business but is a bad balance sheet, as they say, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise known as taking on too much debt. Um, then what happens is that you, as the debt holder, become, you know, if the company gets restructured and you become the equity holder. And then, you know, now that the equity in this in this good business with a better balance sheet, um, you know, is less levered, uh, it can then, you know, potentially get into more traditional investor hands, including, you know, mutual funds and ETFs and whatnot. And so as that recovers, usually distressed investors exit. And so that's kind of, they serve almost like a, as, a, as, a, as a proxy, in another proxy, like a transitional investor from between, you know, a healthy company to when it goes, you know, to when it gets into trouble and when it becomes healthy again. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, in fact, I had somebody on the show maybe a year or two ago that was talking about doing that from a retail perspective. And his idea was to buy the equity, which... I would think it's pretty pretty risky because that gets wiped out. That's the first thing that gets wiped out. Um, so yeah, have you thought about how you would play that? Yeah, I think we would do it in partnership with a with an okay. existing fund. Yeah, that I don't think sense. we would try to do that ourselves. And and, yeah. and we we strongly believe, you know, look, I mean, we I think we're 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 you know we're smart enough to figure out kind of the bigger picture and 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 figure out you know kind of what's going on and follow what's going on and 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 and, and allocate our exposure and change our exposures to that. But within certain verticals um, or, or certain you know parts of the client portfolios, you know, similar to like I said, like the family office and endowment foundation model, you know, we're going to outsource certain things to other managers. Mm-hmm. So that's how mm-hmm. we would that's how we would do that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, find, find the equity. Find the equity of a of a you know distressed company. Is, is, yeah, he had some views on it. Some I forget exactly. I forget. I should actually go back and check that out. But he didn't have an answer to that when I when I asked him about it. But Anyway, uh, that's really interesting. So, I mean, obviously, it's, it's tough to start uh, any company, um, and then to start, especially, you know, when where the space is pretty crowded. So, how do you differentiate yourselves um, in this, other than I guess doing podcasts like you are now? Yeah. So, uh, so it's been very organic to date. Um, so we have we have kind of I should also mention that, and this is more recent, so this is not not as widely known, but. We have kind of two kind of parallel paths to market. So we have, you know, direct consumer, right? So where we're targeting individuals to, you know, uh, move over existing accounts, whether it be individual taxable accounts, retirement accounts, 401k rollovers has been a very uh, active source of demand for us. Um, and and that's been, you know, that's we've been doing that organically, largely through our network word of mouth. You know, these podcasts have given us great exposure. Um, and, and that's been kind of slowly growing over the course of the year. Um, a couple of months ago, and, and this is, it's been in the work for longer than that, but we were approached by a handful of people just organically in our, in our network again, that are existing RIAs and other existing RIAs with, with kind of captive client bases. And basically the, the reason that they reached out to us was because they said, look, you know, um, what we're really good at as a, as a financial advisor is, is the advice piece, right? Like, mm-hmm. so our clients come to us and we want us to help them figure out, hey, okay, I have, you know, two kids, they're this, this age, you know, I need to save for college. I, I want to buy a house and I have this much money. I, you know, maybe they already bought a house. They want to buy a second property, whatever it is. Right. So that financial kind of planning and, and real, real financial advice piece is very valuable to clients, but the way that it works in financial 
advice industry and the you know um, kind of retail industry is you pay for both of those things with the uh, you know for managing the money right mm. so you pay a fee it's usually you know over one percent I've heard you know I've seen actually as much as three percent which is kind of crazy mm. but um but you basically pay an asset management fee and an asset under management fee on your money to the advisor for that advice and for the investment fees. Mm. And so, so firms came to us, people that we know came to us and said, listen, we're really good at like managing the client relationship and helping them with their planning needs, you know, and then we really outsource the investment fees to, you know, external firms or we use whatever we have off the shelf, uh, you know, as part of the, whatever platform we're a part of, but it doesn't seem like it's that differentiated. And when they, um, when they hear us talk about how we manage and, and what we offer, it is differentiated. And so they can actually, you know, more clearly or easily tell the differentiation mm. because they're, they're a little bit more knowledgeable than the, the average person. Um, and so we, and we'll probably announce this hopefully this week, but we're rolling out a whole kind of B2B um, go-to-market strategy where we will be um, offering what we do for individuals to other advisors for their clients. And so, mm. It's almost like a B2B2C strategy, mm-hmm. um, depending on how we choose to work with them or how they choose to work with us. But um, but that's something that we're pretty excited about because um, that's uh, that's something that, you know, kind of in the back of my head, I always thought that would make sense, but yeah. I thought it would come later in our life. And, you know, just, just you know, kind of anecdotally, like where, pe- you know, people started to approach me asking me for, um, you know, potentially being able to offer it. It just, it just also made sense to do it, you know, quicker. Nice. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, it's interesting that you, you've, you know, you got this niche here um, in the whole financial uh, investment advisory thing, but it does make sense, like you said, because a lot of these wealth managers are great at wealth management, but when when it comes to investing, they just like, don't, it's just not their thing really. Um, So, yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot, a lot of it, even, even for the wealthier clients, for the bigger firms, a lot of the investment piece of it is still tied to a 60-40, like a 60-40. Yeah. It's not exactly 60-40, it's some combination of stocks and bonds. And and they and they very much manage to that 60-40. And they might, it might, there might be some differentiation here and there, and they might use some alternatives here and there, but m- mostly they're just trying to um now not underperform that 60-40 mix. Yeah. Um, and what, what we said is, you know, look, our our role as a fiduciary is to do what's right for the client not to, you know, uh, not, not to stick mm. to a benchmark, right? And yeah. so to, to my example earlier, which I think is, is the right approach, you know, fixed income at the end of 2021 seemed like a risky proposition. But if you were to follow uh, what a traditional model would tell you or a traditional financial advisor will tell you based on, you know, let's say your age and risk profile, let's say you're on the older end, closer to retirement, they would say, you know, a lot more in fixed income, yeah. less in equities. And that was, that was a bad, that was not the right advice. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and they just, you know, a lot of traditional firms just won't do it because that's kind of, you know, they're, they're designed to just do, you know, what's, what's been done for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So, so that, that does take us kind of full circle here to the, the various um, investments that you have. You mentioned ICLN as a way to get exposure to clean energy and what other kind of exposure are, are you do you have recommend now? 
Yeah, so we, uh, I think you and I talked about it before, but we also have a position. So so we're bullish on copper in general yeah. as, a, as a theme, as kind of part of this clean energy, um, this theme transition of, of, of the um, supply of energy into, into cleaner cleaner sources. Copper is a big input for that. It's a huge input for that. And, and there's not a lot of, um, it's also something that is in short supply. And the biggest miner of copper in, in the U.S. is Freeport McMarin, FCX mm-hmm. ticker. Uh, again, not investment advice, but we, yep. we do have an allocation, a small allocation as part of our kind of commodity and commodity equity exposure to Freeport McMarin because we feel like, you know, copper is, one, is going to be one of these things that does benefit um, from this transition to clean energy, in addition to just being, you know, even without it being in short supply. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then other, you mentioned uranium. Do you de- buy any uranium ETFs? There's a couple of those. Yeah. So we, we uh, upon, upon um, a bunch of research, we chose an ETF called uh, URA, which is, we found to be a good diversified way to provide exposure to both the actual commodity and commodity and, and to uranium equities. Um, and so we like that one. Again, mm. these are these are not sized in a huge way, I would yeah. say. And, and again, it kind of depends on the client portfolio, but sure. they're sized in a smaller way. Um, but they are things that we think, again, in, in the longer term time horizon, are going to have significant upside, um, yep. just based on the just based on the kind of supply demand uh, imbalances in, in those sectors. Mm-hmm. Okay, URA or URIA? URA. Oh, URA. Cool. All right, and then anything else? I mean, you mentioned alternative approaches. Would you short anything? Would you do short ETFs or anything like that? No, I, I don't think I don't think our our clients are are really paying us for that. I think that um, I think if we if we chose to partner with a long short manager and and that's the the view they chose to express, then that's how we get that exposure. I think probably more likely than long short. I think we we'd look to macro. We we're pretty we're generally pretty bullish on the macro space in this environment. We think macro the strategy, as I'm sure you're familiar with, right, has been very out of favor for a long mm. time. And it's because it's just been very hard to generate returns mm. in that in that strategy because the market has been you know this kind of one way market right yeah. like yeah. you know if you were to go back you know if you were a time traveler you would just go back to you know the end of the financial crisis by you know triple leverage QQQs and you would have done really really well in hindsight right um, and so there's it's very hard to to make money in a lot of these more active strategies and these alternative strategies but that's that's one thing we would um, we would consider. And we and we we talk to regularly to macro hedge fund managers because again between I think I don't think I mentioned this but between my my background my CFO's background my CIO's background you know we, we we've all been in the kind of hedge fund or alternative investment industry for two decades each hmm. so we have a number of relationships and and um and 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 we talk to them on a regular basis mm-hmm. one thing that we 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 were talking about recently which I don't know if it's something that we will do, but there's, there's a different way to play, um, you know, to, if you're, if you're, if you think there's potentially downside in the market, you know, what we've done is basically kind of de-risk the, the portfolios a little bit as this year has went, went on by going into, you know, short-term treasuries because, okay. um, you know, short-term treasuries don't have a ton of duration risk and, you know, at four plus percent yields, it seems like a good risk reward. Um, and that's just a tactical kind of allocation as, you know, as the market plays itself out. If we actually wanted to maybe get, you know, make money as the, as the market goes down or as the market goes down, you know, um, some of the trend following strategies like mm. CPAs and whatnot. And there's some some decent ones that are available that that are kind of off the shelf, so to speak, that we've been researching. We, we haven't made any decisions there, but that might be a way to do it also mm. is to is to introduce something like that into client portfolios. 
Yeah, yeah, they do well when it, when there's crisis and, and when there's uh, bad stuff that that happens. Usually, uh, again, you have to know the manager and, and know the, the fund and the strategy or the advisor, I guess. Cool. All right, great. Um, anything else I should ask you while I still have you? Oh, one thing, obviously, I'm going to ask is, is just how to find you and stuff. And we'll pull that in the show notes. But is there anything else I should? No, I mean, that this has been a great conversation. I cool. appreciate you having me on the show. I'm a fan of Yeah, man, it's my pleasure. Pod. Yeah, okay, uh, let me let me ask the last question now, so then I'll yeah. Yeah. Right, finally, in closing, um, maybe, Carol, Carol, sorry, you can tell us and our listeners how they can find out more about you and about your firm and to get in touch. Sure. It's, uh, it, you know, we're on the web, centerfin.co. Um, I'm Kyril, K-Y-R-I-L-L at centerfin.co. I'm also on Twitter trying to stay, you know, trying to become more active on Twitter as, as everybody these days. I'm uh, at Wall Street Hobbs, S-T. Wall S T H O B B E S on Twitter. Okay. I'll have to ask you a different time what the meaning of that was. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you. I it, that was from 2009 and uh I've kept the same cool uh, the, the same uh name. Neat. All right, cool. Well, I'll put that all in the show notes if you missed it, so you can get it there if you like. Thank you, Kyle, for coming on. Thank you all for listening. And with that, we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.